104.6. Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You listen to the sound of universal compassion. Today is the 4th of June. We will continue listening to Tendons' previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. And please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, and I hope your week has been happy and that you've been able to practice mindfulness for at least part of it. If you were with us for the last program, you may remember these two verses from Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Life, the text on which I'm basing our talks. I should undertake whatever deed I have intended to do and think of doing nothing other than it. With my mind applied to that task, I should set about for the time being to accomplish it. By acting in this way, all will be well done, but by acting otherwise, neither action will be done. Likewise, there will be increase in the proximate disturbing conceptions that come from lack of alertness. The reason I'm repeating these verses is not only because they are where we left off last last time, but because they encapsulate why we need to practice mindfulness, not only on the meditation cushion, but in all areas of our lives. As Shantideva says, If the mind is used to being concentrated on the task at hand, we can be sure that both our current project and all subsequent tasks will be completed to the best of our ability. However, if we allow the mind to become habituated to going walkabout with everything we do, we will never be at home in the present moment, and so so all our efforts will either lead to complete failure or to a work that is hardly up to standard. But he mentions an even worse consequence of not practicing mindfulness and alertness, being ambushed by the disturbing conceptions, those emotional disturbances like attachment, aversion, pride, ignorance and so on, whose only function is to cause harm. It's like boasting a sentry at the gate of a fort. As long as the sentry is awake and alert, he will have much better chance of detecting and warning those inside the fort of enemy activity. Similarly, if we post mindfulness and alertness at the gateway of our mind, it will be much easier for us to see the disturbing conceptions arising and to take immediate action against them. For our enemies, those disturbing conceptions and emotions are always lurking on the outskirts of our awareness, ready to attack given the least opportunity. Let someone say even the slightest thing that may be a criticism of who we think we are and irritation or anger is only ready to leap, only too ready to leap in and stand by our side, ready to do battle. Ostensibly, that anger appears to be our friend, like Mr. Miyagi was Ralph Macchio's savior in The Karate Kid. But actually, it only offers to help us to ensnare us. Allow it to befriend us, and like a bad influence, it will start to dog us 
encouraging us to fight at any opportunity until we can no longer do anything without taking its advice. And be sure, it will always urge us to be aggressive. Instead of teaching us ease of mind and how to live peacefully and harmoniously with ourselves and others, it stirs turmoil, leading to actions that bring pain both to ourselves and those we interact with. That is the way the afflictive emotions operate. If we're not mindful, they will quickly infiltrate our minds and create mayhem. Soon, they will be the commanders-in-chief of chaos and we will be their slave. The chapter we are following in Shantideva's text and the previous one show us how to develop mindfulness and alertness and why we should do so. For the interpretation of the text, I am using teachings by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and a commentary by Pema Chodron called No Time to Lose as references for the teachings I've had by various Buddhist masters on this text. But now before we continue, let's take time out as usual just to think about our motivation and to try to make it as extensive as possible. Normally our activities are calculated to bring benefit to this life only. We eat to enjoy the taste of the food and to stay healthy. We listen to music for the immediate sensory pleasure we experience and so on. But from a Buddhist point of view, this is not a worthy motivation. This life is short and passes swiftly, and so activities that cater only to the comfort of this life bring very small benefit. Coming lives in comparison will last eons longer, so wouldn't it be wiser to try to create benefit for those lives? But even if we do, and that benefit lasts for a very long time into many lives, it will inevitably eventually run out, and then we will return to situations of discomfort once again. So wouldn't it be even better to create a benefit that frees us from such situations forever? In other words, liberation from the endless round of cyclic existence. Now this seems to be an excellent motivation for an action. I'm doing this action so that I can attain liberation and become free from all disturbing conceptions, dissatisfaction and suffering altogether. However, I'm only one, and if I look around me, I see everyone else is in the same boat as I am. We're all living in the midst of dissatisfaction and misery, trying to do the best we can with a very unsatisfactory existence. Wouldn't it be great if we could be all be liberated and not have to suffer ever again? And doesn't that suggest a much better motivation? The motivation that not only do my actions free me from dissatisfaction forever, but also free all others in the same situation as me. This leads to bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings, and the greatest, the most beneficial motivation we can possibly have. So, let's be massive-minded about participating in this program today and try to set a bodhicitta motivation like that. But if you really can't, Go to the next step down and at least motivate for your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now in the following verses, Shantideva goes through a variety of activities to show us how to act with mindfulness and alertness. Some of them you will notice are quite mundane and harmless and you may ask, what is wrong with doing that? But we have to remember that it's not the action that Shantideva is taking issue with, but the mind that accompanies that action. 
As long as an action is impelled by a distracted mind, it is in some way yielding to the afflictive emotions, even if those afflictive emotions are not immediately apparent. So, for instance, he says, If for no reason I start digging the earth, picking at the grass or drawing patterns on the ground, then by recalling the advice of the Buddhas, I should immediately stop out of fear. It is obvious he's talking here about aimless digging, pulling at plants or doodling on the earth. What is wrong with such actions? Nothing in themselves, but look at the mind behind these actions and we will either find a clouded ignorance, a do factor if you like, or some dream into the past or future, or just a plain old fantasy. The afflictive emotions are awaiting just such an opportunity and before we know it, we will be carried away into places that only guarantee at least our own dissatisfaction and probably harm to others. That is why Shantideva says that when we notice ourselves approaching such actions, we should stop out of fear. Not because the actions are necessarily bad, but because they indicate that the sentries are asleep on the job and the enemy is about to creep in. Actually, when you become ordained as a monk or nun, you're not allowed to idly dig in the ground, pull up, pull up plants or doodle. And if we look at why we, do it, well, why we are doing these things, it's because our mind is not interested in concentrating on the present moment. As I say, we have either gone into a waking sleep or the dreamland that is called the past and future. Doing that, we strengthen the habits of a wandering mind and also open ourselves to the disturbing emotions. Whenever I have the desire to move my body or to say something, first of all I should examine my mind and then with steadiness act in a proper way. Whenever there is attachment in my mind and whenever there is the desire to be angry, I should not do anything nor say anything but remain like a piece of wood. The first of these two verses starts whenever I have the desire to move my body or to say something. This means all the time, doesn't it? We're constantly moving or opening our mouth to say something. So Shantideva says here that we have to be constantly awake to what we're doing. I live with one other monk and one of the things I really appreciate is the ability to be together in any situation in complete quiet. It's not that uncomfortable situation I used to find myself in with someone else when I had nothing to say but was intimidated by silence between us. In such situations, we tend to come out with any old mindless thing. The weather's always a good excuse, just to create some noise. In about 1967, and I'm showing my age here, Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney made a movie called Two for the Road about the evolution of a married couple's love-hatred relationship over a 12-year period. In one early scene, before they are married, Hepburn and Finney are on the road and stop at a restaurant where an old couple is sitting at a meal, paying hardly any attention to each other. I think the old man may have been reading a newspaper. Albert Finney glances at them and then says to Audrey Hepburn, What kind of people just sit in a restaurant and don't say one word to each other? And she replies, Married people? Because at the time I thought marriage was a very troublesome institution, I used to think it was an awfully clever line. But perhaps it was more clever than I imagined. Perhaps the old couple, like that, have run out of things to say to each other. 
perhaps they're so completely bored with each other that they can ignore one another while still plodding through their everyday conventional activities. But perhaps they're so attuned they don't need to say anything for a full communication. Perhaps the trivialities have long dropped away as no longer relevant. Sometime after I became a monk and returned to New Zealand, I found myself living with someone who seemed to dislike silence intensely. From the first good morning, there had to be commentary on the weather, the number of cars going by, last night's dream, anything, including statements of the most obvious, to fill any silence between us. In the end, I stopped even saying good morning, because I knew it would only lead to an endless parade of trivial conversation that would give rise to delusion or irritation. I was not very experienced, and it was, of course, not a compassionate solution, and I probably wouldn't use such a strategy now. But it is one reason why I'm grateful for my present living arrangements. Of course, I'm not saying I'm always mindful and alert, don't I wish I was, but living with someone who doesn't feel the need to fill the quiet when there's nothing relevant to say certainly helps me in trying to develop mindfulness and alertness. Of course, silence can be used as a weapon also. My father was very good at that. In Two for the Road, in a much later situation when Finney and Hepburn's relationship had soured, he said to her, Just wish that you'd stop sniping. I haven't said a word, exclaims Hepburn. And just because you use a silencer doesn't mean you're not a sniper, returns Finney. I'm truly grateful also that that situation never arises in the temple I'm staying in. Shantideva then goes on with a second verse to say, Whenever there's an attachment in my mind, and whenever there is the desire to be angry, I should not do anything nor say anything, but remain like a piece of wood. He's saying that when we are afflicted by anger or attachment, we should retreat and become immovable and unaffected as a lump of wood. He uses this metaphor of a piece of wood extensively in this chapter to indicate how we should react when the afflictive emotions arise in us. He started using it in a verse we covered in last week's program. And it strikes me that it's all very well to stop oneself from doing or saying something outwardly, but once an emotion like attachment or anger has arisen, it's virtually, virtually impossible for someone without extensive mental training to remain unaffected and detached within. We can deal with the outward situation without becoming involved, but what about the emotion that wants to rage within us? We cannot just switch it off or ignore it as though it has no relevance to our experience. A few programs ago, I described Thich Nhat Hanh's five-point approach to the arising of afflictive emotions. He also advocates that we don't act out the emotion or the story that it suggests, but tells us to go within and pay calm, compassionate attention to the emotion itself. This is also Pema Children's advice. And just to remind you, Thich Nhat Hanh says, first put your mind on the emotion to recognize it. Then welcome it. This is where the compassionate part comes in. Anybody who's tried fighting or suppressing emotions knows what a draining and ultimately futile endeavor that is. It just creates so much tension and unhappiness and doesn't weaken the emotion at all. The Buddhist way to deal with it, like everything else, 
is with compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh advises us to say to the emotion, Oh, hello emotion, I recognize you. How are you today? And keep a calm, observant mind on it. Like a mother closely observes her child. He even recommends cradling it. Then, as we breathe in, we calm the emotion, even saying to ourselves, As I breathe in, I calm my mind. And as we breathe out, we smile at ourselves and at the emotion. And as a mother sings to her baby, we may repeat, As I breathe out, I smile. The emotion should then calm down and start to fade. At the appropriate moment, we can let it go and bid it farewell. As a mother lays her baby in the cot when it has fallen asleep and then goes on her way. Finally, we may return to the story of the situation and analyze with a calm, rational mind to find out why the emotion arose and to see what we can do to both fix the situation, if it needs fixing, and prevent the emotion arising again. So Tignod Hahn's five points are, first, recognize the emotion. Second, welcome it, make, make friends with it. Third, calm it with the in-breath. And fourth, when ready, let it go. This has all been done with no reference to the situation or story that gave rise to the emotion. So the last thing is to return to the situation or story and use calm intelligence to analyze and solve it the best way we can. In the process, we examine why the emotion arose and what we can do so that it has fewer chances of arising again in the future. Thich Nhat Hanh says that each time we deal with difficult emotions in this way, we weaken them a little. Eventually, if we continue doing this every time they arise, we can so weaken them that their effect on us will be negligible. So while Shantideva may be advising us in this last verse, and in several of those coming, to become physically immobile so as not to create negative karma when the afflictions arise, internally we may have to practice Thich Nhat Hanh's five points, or some other technique to dampen the afflictions. Becoming as stolid as a piece of wood internally will probably be a step too far for most of us. As I have pointed out before, Pema Chodron says that the first intimation of an affliction arising is a tightening in the mind, a kind of tug of aversion or attachment. She talks about a sight, sound or thought that gives rise to a feeling of comfort or discomfort. Energetically, she says, there's a perceptible pull. It's like wanting to scratch an itch. And we don't have to be advanced meditators to experience this. And if we can catch it at that point, it will be relatively easy to deal with. However, that slight itch lasts for only a short time before we are thrown into a more full-blown emotional state. Then, although Pema Chodron says we can still catch the emotion in three more stages, the mental turmoil and our bad mental habits are somewhat more difficult to address. Whenever I've distracted thoughts, the wish to verbally belittle others, feelings of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the intention to describe the faults of others, pretension and the thought to deceive others, whenever I'm eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause dispute, at such times I should remain like a piece of wood. Pema Chodron identifies these last three and the next two verses as dealing with the first of the three ethical disciplines of not causing harm, gathering virtue 
and benefiting others. So these verses are showing us how to practice so as to minimize the harm we cause to ourselves and others. Because it is such a clear explanation of the practice, I'm going to read out a few paragraphs of what Pema Chodron writes. As we go through it, remember Thich Nhat Hanh's five-point plan, and perhaps you'll be able to see how the two approaches can be quite an extensive practice. Now this is what Pema Chodron says. The initial tug of for or against is the first place we can remain as steady as a log. Just experience the tug and relax into the restlessness of the energy without fanning this ember with thoughts. If we stay present with the rawness of our direct experience, emotional energy can move through us without getting stuck. Of course, this isn't easy and takes practice. The second opportunity for staying steady and alert is when our thoughts are underway but haven't gained momentum. By interrupting thoughts before we get worked up, we diffuse the energy and the intensity of the emotions. Emotional intensity can't survive without our thoughts, so this is a pivotal instruction. If we don't catch these subtle thoughts, our emotions escalate. Nevertheless, this is the third place we can remain like a log. We can let the storyline go even after the emotional heat has started to rise. It's never too late to interrupt the escalation of the clashes. And here by clashes, she means the afflictive emotions or disturbing conceptions. And then she goes on, The fourth place we can hold our seats is just before we take the fatal step of speaking or acting out. The sooner we interrupt this predictable chain reaction, the better. At the pre-verbal stage of getting hooked, that is the stage of the first tug, emotions are less enticing. They are still quite workable at the early stage of the thought process. By dissolving thought here, the clasher urge has no fuel and can't expand or become explosive. When you feel the sting of an insult, for, ins- for example, you don't have to magnify it with your thoughts or buy into a storyline that works you into a rage. Just acknowledge the thoughts and let them fade away. Then abide with the sharpness and the bite of your experience. Now, I think this is where Thich Nhat Hanh's approach helps in calming the sharpness and bite of the experience. Where Pema Children recommends just sitting with the discomfort, Thich Nhat Hanh actively goes out and works with it with compassion. He says, see it like a mother sees her baby and treat it softly and gently until it stops crying. Anyway, Pema Children continues, if you do get stirred up and the drama gets well underway, you can still interrupt the process. It's definitely more difficult, but it's possible. The final instruction to refrain from words or actions points to the easiest place to notice the urge, but the hardest time to refrain. Now the pull is so strong it feels irresistible. Nevertheless, the instruction remains the same. Let go of the thoughts and relax with the underlying energy. Pema Chodron then makes the very important point that when Shantideva says, I should remain like a piece of wood, he's not recommending that we suppress the emotion, but that we are merely refraining from action. We acknowledge what is going on and allow it, keeping a compassionate attitude towards it. We don't push it down and out of the way. In support of Thich Nhat Hanh, Pema Chodron goes on to recommend that we focus on the breath. 
It can be helpful to gently breathe in and out with the restlessness of the energy, she says. This is a major support for learning to stay present. Basic wakefulness is right here if we can just relax. Our situation is fundamentally fluid, unbiased and free, and we can tune into this at any time. When we practice remaining like a piece of wood, we allow for this opportunity. Then Shantideva goes on, Whenever I desire material gain, honor, fame, whenever I seek attendance or a circle of friends, and when my mind, when in my mind I wish to be served, at all these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have the wish to decrease or to stop working for others, and the desire to pursue my welfare alone, if motivated by such thoughts, a wish to say something occurs, at these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have impatience, laziness, cowardice, shamelessness, or the desire to talk nonsense, if thoughts of partiality arise, at these times too I should remain like a piece of wood. Having in this way examined his mind for disturbing conceptions and for thoughts that strive for meaningless things, the courageous Bodhisattva should hold his mind steady through the application of remedial forces. Shantideva describes many of the strategies that we use to escape our immediate discomfort and bring ourselves ease. Feelings of lack, maybe of being left behind, of missing out on something important, or of needing validation, all bring us discomfort, which we try to escape through material gain, reputation, or a large collection of friends. The trouble, of course, is that these strategies don't work. They might bring an immediate relief but in the long run, they do not have the power to free us from the discomfort. How much has material gain contributed to your long-term ongoing happiness? Some years ago, a British magazine, I will forget which one it was now, ran an article on why the richest people in England continue to work. Most had fortunes they could never spend in a single lifetime, but they still went to the office every day in the quest of more money. It became clear in the article that their drive was to make more and more money. Their fortunes didn't bring them comfort. In fact, it was only a spur to increase their wealth. For them, the end to gathering material wealth was death time. But none of them was happy. This was the recurring theme. They were all rich beyond all imagining of it. They were intent on making more and more money, but none of it brought them any peace and contentment. And for people obsessed with reputation, it is the same. Think of the film and rock stars with their endless efforts to keep in the limelight, to always be portrayed in the most beautiful, desirable light. But does it bring satisfaction, contentment and ongoing happiness? Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt put it succinctly when he said, Fame is a bitch. To a certain extent, those of us with little mental training all have these urges and goals. But Shantideva, recognizing that they are impure to say the least, recommends that we be alert to them in our minds, and when they appear, not to act or speak. Again, we can watch the thoughts and emotions they bring as they arise, apply the techniques we have described so far, and let the afflictions go. In the same way that material gain, reputation and selfish desires can never result in long-term contentment, the altruistic thought to be of benefit to others can. And so in the next section, Shantideva instructs us 
how to encourage ourselves to build those qualities that will bring benefit. Of course, where the world says, look after yourself first because nobody else will, the Buddha's advice is, contrarily, to focus on others first because that is in fact the best way to ensure your own happiness and contentment. Being very resolute and faithful, steady, respectful, polite, with a sense of shame, apprehensive and peaceful, I should strive to make others happy, says, says Shantideva. And now, because we've run out of time, I'll leave that for you to think about for the next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from our program today to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, but failing that, at least for yourself. Thank you, and I hope you'll join the program again next week. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering.